0: facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show for another week. It's so good to be with you. It is July the 10th. It's Monday. So happy to be with you once more as we kick off another work week, another great week on the show, and you can call in right now, grab a line, 888-914-9149, toll free to talk to me, 888 888- 914 9149. Of course, you can always email the program Kale, E at relevantradio.com and find me on Twitter. You can send me a DM. You can slip into my DMs. You can follow me on Twitter at Kale Clark. Not in that kind of way, but you can follow me at Kale Clark. C-A-L-E Clark with an E. Wow, we've got so much stuff to talk about today. I, I later on, no, it's Monday, so this is a good this is a good day to talk about this. A lot of you guys are kicking off a work week. A lot of you guys are kicking off a 40-hour work week. Where, did, where does that come from, by the way? Where did the 40-hour-a-week work week originate? You might be surprised about this. And, and is it always the greatest idea? Is it always what will make us the most productive? We're gonna We're going to talk about that later on, plus a lot more faith, facts, and fun for you, as we always have on the program. But thought it was really interesting today. I was uh, on Mondays. I read at Mass on Monday mornings and I was really pleased to see what the reading was for this day. And it's from the book of Genesis. And, and by the way, we are doing a, a little fun mini-series on the Faith Explained program, 1230 Central on Relevant Radio or anytime on the app or podcast. We're talking about the Genesis of creation, going through the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. but on the show and you can go to the show page and check check out the whole genesis series Uh, today's reading came from a little further on in the book of genesis in genesis chapter 28 and it's the famous account of jacob's ladder it's really intriguing and actually here's here's a bit of the the reading here it says that jacob departed from beersheba maybe had a few too many at beersheba it's known as a great watering hole just kidding But uh, actually, he was on the run. He was on the run from Esau, his brother, who was livid that Jacob dressed up as him, as you know. um, Stole the blessing from his dad, and and Jacob's on the run. Esau wants to kill him. And and so he's, he's going towards this place called Haran. And it says, when he came upon a certain shrine, as the sun had already set, he stopped there for the night. Taking one of the stones at the shrine, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep at that spot. Not a very comfortable pillow. You, you've got a stone for your pillow there. Then it says he had a dream. And it's interesting because the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, they use a translation that actually gets the, the translation right. It says he had a dream. Jacob had a dream. A stairway rested on the ground with its top-reaching to the heavens, in a lot of translations, it says a ladder, and this is where we get the famous Jacob's ladder uh, image—a stairway rested on the ground with its top reaching to the heavens, and God's messengers, who are they? The angels were going up and down on it, and there was the Lord standing beside him and saying, "I, the Lord, and the God of your forefather Abraham and the God of Isaac." The land on which you are lying, I will give to you and your descendants. These shall be as plentiful as the dust of the earth, and through them you shall spread out east and west, north and south, and you and your descendants. All the nations of the earth shall find blessing. And by the way, we know that that was fulfilled through Abraham. We talked about Abraham last week. Father Abraham, obviously God said the same to him. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven. The grains of sand on the seashore. And certainly by faith, that's, that's absolutely the case. Uh, he's our father in faith. But this was obviously originated back with Jacob. And God said to him, Know that I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. I will never leave you until I have done what I promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he exclaimed, Truly the Lord is in this spot, although I did not know it. I did not know it. In solemn wonder, he cried out, How awesome is this shrine! There is nothing else. This is nothing else but an abode of God, and that is the gateway to heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up as a memorial stone, and poured oil on top of it. He called the site Bethel, whereas the former name of the town had been Luz. So Bethel, by the way, means the house of God. Beth means house. El is one of the Hebrew names for God. Beth-El. It's like Bethlehem means the house of bread. That's where the bread of life, Jesus Christ, was, of course, born. So Bethel, that's the name of the place. That's what it means. And here we have an example of one of the patriarchs building an altar, and he sort of pours out a libation here, a drink offering. Not some of the the beer he got from Beersheba, but some oil. and Save the beer, but he pours oil on top of it. And then Jacob makes a vow. He says, if God remains with me to protect me on this journey I am making and to give me enough bread to eat and clothing to wear, and I come back safe to my father's house, the Lord shall be my God. This stone that I've set up as a memorial stone shall be God's abode. Just a beautiful reading from the book of Genesis today at Mass from Genesis chapter 28. And it's it's easy to criticize Jacob and say, well, he should have trusted God more. Hey, if God's going to be with me, if I have food and clothing, and this is what St. Paul says in the New Testament, hey, if we have food to eat, we have clothes to wear, we've got a roof over our heads. Many times Paul didn't even have that. Hey, we'll be satisfied. Let your needs be few. Don't multiply needs for yourself. And you got to remember, the patriarchs didn't know God as well as we should, because Again, this is a process of revelation. It, it's, it's the divine pedagogy. God is, is revealing himself bit by bit. It, it, but I want to really focus on on verse 10 and 11. In verse 11, verse 12, this is where, this is where um, Jacob has this dream, this vision. He, he dreams that there is a stairway set up. And, and again, in your translation, it might say a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. What exactly is this? What exactly is this? Well, I do think the translation is correct that has it as a staircase, a staircase. And it's really like, a. with apologies to Led Zeppelin, it's a stairway to heaven. You guys remember this song, right? This, is, this was an incredible song for me during high school. High school dances because it's an awesome song to ask a girl to dance to. I mean, a cute girl from biology class just tap her on the shoulder, high school dance in the gym, hey, would you like to dance And you know? She won't really want to say no out of politeness, so you do it. And it's really, really long. It's like eight minutes long. So it's like the perfect slow dance song for you and that special someone. Or karaoke, right? If you really want to suck all the air out of the room, dial this one up. you want some extended stage time, drive everybody else crazy, use this. But be forewarned, there are a lot of long instrumental pieces, like this part that you're hearing now, the flute. So you're going to have to maybe do some not just air guitar playing with the long guitar solo by Jimmy Page, but you you might have to do some air fluting as well uh, before you do the uh, Robert Plant vocal. So anyway, Stairway to Heaven, classic tune, of course. And, and that's really what this is. It's a stairway to heaven. But, but it's actually... What did Jacob see? Did he actually see a ladder? No. Did he actually see a set of stairs, as you might see in your house? Like, maybe a spiral staircase growing up? No, that's not what it was. He probably saw something called a ziggurat. A ziggurat. And I I talk a little bit more about this in depth in the Genesis series on the Faith Explained. Once again, all the episodes are available on the Faith Explained page on the Relevant Radio website. Just go to Relevant Radio, go to our shows, find the Faith Explained. But, suffice, suffice to say that a ziggurat... Hey, pass me a ziggurat. It's a temple that has an outer staircase. Maybe you've seen these if you've been to Egypt. I saw I saw one of these for real in Egypt, uh, just like the pyramids. There are these ancient ziggurats. Uh, Abraham, father Abraham, when God called him, he was he was basically in modern day Iraq, and they, they in that country there there is this ancient ziggurat, and it's kind of this triangular sort of. It looks almost like a piece of Lego, if this makes any sense. I don't know what the shape would be called, but but it's got a staircase on the outside. And the staircase goes to the top of the structure. And really what this is, it's a pagan temple. These are pagan temples that were all over the place in the ancient world. So what's the staircase for? You went up the staircase to meet with the god at the top and sort of on the on the flight deck, if you will, so you go up to the very, very top, you go to the, go to the rooftop balcony, of the penthouse, and that's where the deity was supposed to come down and meet with the priest or whoever. So that's, that, this was very, very common in the ancient world. So people used to think that at the top of this temple, this ziggurat, there was a portal that would open up between heaven and earth. The divine being would descend to meet with humans by the way, when they were building the Tower of Babel back in uh, Genesis chapter 11, you see paintings of, of, of them building the Tower of Babel, and, and it kind of looks like the leaning Tower of Pisa. It's that kind of temple. It's like a, a building. No, that's not really what it looked like. In all likelihood, it was a ziggurat with this outer staircase on the outside, so, with apologies to Led Zeppelin, Jacob's ladder is in all likelihood a stairway to heaven. He probably saw a ziggurat temple in his vision. So, that's, that's what that's all about. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 9149 Well, how does this relate to the New Testament? It's actually really intriguing because Jesus picks up on this. And this is one of the places where you see how funny... Jesus really, really was. He got a great sense of humor. So, in John chapter 1, this is a great chapter because Jesus is gathering his ap- apostles. He's kind of gathering his crew. And when he meets Nathanael, this, this is what he says when he, when he finds Nathanael. When Nathanael finds him. And this is in John chapter 1, verse 47 and following. It says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, By the way, that, that's high praise. Can you imagine? This is what we have to sort of search for and sort of try to be in our own lives. We want Jesus to say to us, Hey, here, here's a true Catholic in whom there is nothing false. Here's a true follower of mine in whom there is nothing false. That's high praise. That's really high praise about Nathaniel's character. And Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? Jesus answers him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. So what's the deal with this fig tree, by the way? Apparently, it was very common uh, in ancient Israel for the rabbis, and maybe some other people too, to have a fig tree in their yard, and and not just for the figs, not just for the fruit, but for the fruits of their study, because what they would do is they would, in the the heat of the day, they would sit under the fig tree for study, They they would reflect with the scriptures, and just try to talk to God, and in all likelihood, whether this was happening like right before this, right before Nathaniel met Jesus, or whether when Philip called him, that's where he was, or maybe this was some other really seminal moment that happened, uh, at a moment that he was having with God under this fig tree. Maybe he was searching the scriptures. Maybe he was looking for the coming Messiah, and he was having this conversation with God, and now his prayer is dramatically answered. Here he is. And it's interesting, as, as soon as Jesus says this to him, he knows what he's talking about. Maybe his mind flashes back to this moment. How did he know I was there? What, whatever it was, it was a very meaningful moment for Nathaniel, and he's just blown away by this. He, he instantly makes this act of faith, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answers him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, that's you know he really means business when he says truly, truly, amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So there's just so much meaning in in what Jesus is saying here. The Son of Man is basically a a reference to his divinity, has nothing to do with his humanity. Um, That's from Daniel chapter 7. But you can ask me about that, triple eight nine one four-nine one four nine. But but it's interesting because again, this is this shows the, the great humor of Jesus as well. Because you know that God changed Jacob's name, this whole idea of Jacob's ladder and the stairway to heaven. God changed Jacob's name to Israel because he became the father. He's one of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He becomes the father of all of those who would found. The 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, right? The sons of Israel, they would found the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And and as you know, Jacob was known as a a bit of a liar, if you will, a deceiver. That's really what his name means, Jacob the liar. Because he tricked his brother Esau. And he tricked his father Isaac into giving him Esau's inheritance, the patriarchal blessing. So this this is what's funny about how Jesus calls him. He calls Nathaniel a true Israelite. In whom there is nothing false. So what he's basically saying is, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob, in whom there is no lie. He's not a liar, right? Like so, it's just a, a great pun by Jesus. Um, Israel, of course, it became Jacob's name. Here's a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. All right, very, very good, very clever. So but Nathaniel, just as Jacob was, he was a trickster. Jacob was a total trickster. He would, he would he was not above uh, using deceit to further his own ends, but not the case with Nathaniel. He's completely without guile. So when, when Jesus says to Nathaniel, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, what was he saying? He's again referring to what happened with Jacob in, in this incident that we saw from Genesis 28. But Jesus is Jacob's ladder. Jesus is that way to get. He is the way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Right. Remember John 14, 6. That's a great way to explain it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So he is that stairway to heaven. He is that bridge to heaven. And so when the eternal God united himself, with a human nature. He, he sort of was building a stairway to heaven for us through the incarnate Jesus. Th- this is incredible to think about. And, and that's really a large part of, of what this really means and what it's all about. So, uh, that's remember when Jesus said also in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. But well, when was he lifted up from the earth? On the cross, right? So again, the cross is kind of also that that stairway to heaven as it were and I, I just love what it says about nathaniel because nathaniel was a bit of a joker too like like jacob he he said can anything good come out of nazareth come on like you know when philip was saying hey you got to meet this guy jesus we think he's the messiah he's like i highly doubt it. so he's kind of sarcastic he he had, he had a sense of humor too but he wasn't deceitful the, the, he wasn't the like the old jacob and that's why Jesus said, "Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob." And so, when when Jacob was running away from Esau, and, he, and that was this all happened. This this vision of the stairway to heaven happened in his first night away from home. And I think Jacob probably felt at that time that God had maybe lost sight of him. He'd messed up to the point where he, he couldn't be redeemed. It was all over for him. But God really reminded him that I'm going to be with you. And this is one of the many, many times in scripture where God, where God says, I will be with you. And he has to learn how to trust him. And, and Jacob needed that vision because he needed to see what was actually the reality, or the ultimate reality around him, which he couldn't, he couldn't see that with his natural eyesight. I mean, it, But it was as real as the rock that he was laying his head on, that God was there. He just couldn't see it. With his human eyes, and the same was true with Jesus, because people could not see with their natural eyes that God Himself was with them. It takes faith, right? It take it takes trust, because the divinity was hidden, right, by by His humanity, and it takes even more faith to believe in the Eucharist, because the divinity and the humanity is not visible uh, to the naked eye, to our human senses, and so. This is really what, what we have to have. We have to have that kind of faith that God is with us, no matter what we might be going through and whatever we might, predicament we might be in. We might have think we've blown it like Jacob and it's all over for us. No, he is uh, with us and he has a plan for us and he's going to be able to to get us to, to where he wants us to be. And, and I just love that. So I just thought I'd share that with you. That's what the Stairway to Heaven is all about. We got to take a little break here on the Kale Clark Show on this Monday. So happy to be with you as we kick off another week. Where exactly did the 40-hour work week come from? Anyways, I'm going to share this with you. But is it really a good thing? We'll be right back. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. Talk to you soon.
2: Auto worker let me thank you for your time You work a morning hour for a living Just to send it on
3: down
1: the line Hello, uh, The Great Alabama Still, worker, One of the best country bands time. of all time That's hour hour from their 1985 day. album, 40-hour week the Second track released, obviously titled title track and we got to thank all the workers in America for all they do, all the hard work they put in. It's a great tune. I have fond memories of listening to that in the car with my dad. Big country music fan. And yeah, so I want to talk about this idea of the 40-hour week, the 40-hour work week. Where, is it, where does it come from? Where is it headed? And is it ideal? Well, it kind of depends. kind of depends. A Morgan Housel, who w- wrote a book called The Psychology of Money, very interesting, I wrote a blog post called The Advantage of Being a Little Underemployed. What what does that mean? Well, let's talk about where this 40-hour work week came from that Alabama was singing about. Well, before the year 1900, I don't know if you know this, but the average worker in America actually worked more than 60 hours a week. Forget about the 40-hour week. The average worker worked more than 60 hours a week. The standard work week was 10-hour days, six days a week. And there are really only two things that stopped people from working even more. Lights, (laughs) or the lack thereof, and religion. Religion. People just did not work on Sundays. Uh, People went to church on Sundays, and they stopped working whenever it was too dark to see what they were doing. But this was not ideal for a lot of different reasons. It was not only extremely tiring but it was often deadly. And the stats on uh, workplace fatalities, workplace injuries were, are absolutely staggering from that era. Don't forget, this was really the industrial age still. It was definitely before the digital age. And coal miners, uh, workers who would very often lose their lives and, and others who were in uh, certain trades. And really where this 40-hour work week kind of got started was because of Unions. No matter what you might think about unions, they're, they're the ones who really were responsible for getting this in place. In the year 1916, railroad workers demanded that they have just an eight-hour workday. And it's for, it was for a very, very good reason, because if workers put in more than eight hours a day uh, working the rails, whether you're driving the train or whether you're doing a switching or whatever the case may, might be, if you work more than eight hours a day, there was a huge spike in accidents, death, accidental death. And so th- this was actually a, a problem for the industry as well as for people's lives. And the workers eventually said, enough with this. They went on strike. And it, and it nearly crushed uh, America in a lot of different ways because don't forget, this was when World War I was still raging in 1916. And the rail system was absolutely crucial for transporting military equipment. So the president at that time... Woodrow Wilson, he was absolutely thinking to himself, we've got to get the trains running on time once again. So he went to Congress and he asked them to put an eight-hour workday for railroad workers into law. And this is what he said back in 1916 to a joint session of Congress. President Woodrow Wilson, he said, quote, I have come to you to seek your assistance in dealing with a very grave situation, which has arisen out of the demand of the employees of the railroads engaged in freight train service, that they be granted an eight-hour working day. I turn to you, deeming it clearly our duty as public servants to leave nothing undone that we can do to safeguard the interests of the nation. End of quote. So that was Woodrow Wilson's appeal to Congress, and it worked. And they passed something that was called the Adamson Act. And so they had an eight-hour workday, the railroad workers. And after that, if they, if they did work more, they had to be paid overtime. So that's how it got started with, with rail workers. And how did it become so widespread to everybody else? Well, 20 years after this, FDR, Roosevelt, he brought in something called the New Deal. Not the Green New Deal that everybody's talking about now. I don't want to get into that. But the original New Deal. And this was all about more rights for workers. And so basically the New Deal, according to uh, to Housel, Morgan Housel, they they kind of used the Adamson Act for railway rail <laughs> I can't even say that railway workers as a template because hey, why should one industry be favored over another? So okay. So they, they got it passed. The eight hour five day work week. The 40-hour work week, that became standard for all industries in America. So that's how it happened. But here we are now. Now it's you know more than 80 years after that. And does that really work for everybody? Is it, does it make everybody productive? Because don't forget, this was originally for a specific subset of workers, railroad workers. Does it work for knowledge workers? A lot of you out there listening right now are in the knowledge work industry. Doing what are called, quote-unquote, white-collar jobs, whatever it may be. And and, and it's often not questioned that, yeah, you still got to do a 40-hour work week, eight hours a day. Does that actually make sense? Does that make sense? Because now that we live in this post-industrial age, huge change in the number of careers that, as Housel says, Morgan Housel, he says that we've gone from physically exhausting work to mentally exhausting work. And you know this, that you can actually feel physically exhausted if you're working in sort of knowledge work. And by the way, it's this doesn't mean it's better than any other kinds of work. If you are a steel mill worker, if you are uh, driving a transport truck, God bless you because, again, the best job is the one that's done with the most love of God. That's what we know through our faith, that the one that, that glorifies God, where you offer it to God, and you try to sanctify yourself in your work, sanctify your work, sanctify other people through it, that's the best job. That's the best job. And so uh, everybody's got an equal shot at this, no matter what we do. And every every job is needed. Every job is absolutely valuable. But you know that if you, if you work in knowledge work, you can come home absolutely zonked, physically and mentally, because the mental strain works itself out in the body. It's true, as... One recent book says it's kind of about something else, but the body keeps the score; it really does. And so, it's um, Housel says that we've gone from doing stuff with our arms to doing stuff with our heads, in a lot of professions. In a lot of professions. Now, here's the thing, though: when railroad workers were exhausted to the point that accidents were happening, everybody could see that. Everybody can see that. And we see, we'll st- we still see this in certain professions now. In fact, if you've been the victim, as I've been, of a canceled flight recently, and you, you know that with all the summer travel that's going on, there are laws in place. If you're piloting a plane or if you're part of the airline crew or the grounds crew, you can only work so many hours a day. Because if you do work more than that, it's super dangerous for everybody. So there's limits. So some flights, they can't get a crew because there's just not enough pilots to go around, so they cancel the flight. So these things are visible. The railroad workers were visible. The crashes were visible. So action was taken to fix the problem. But if you're working in a knowledge industry, if you're, I don't know, a stockbroker, if you're an office worker, if you're a teacher, whatever you might be doing, it's not that easy to see when you are beyond your limits. So you're very often working a schedule that winds up being a little bit counterproductive because it, it, you don't maximize, maximize your productivity. So here, here's what Housel says. This is an interesting part of the article. He says, quote, every single person I've ever worked with comes back from vacation saying some variation of the same thing. And a lot of you guys are on vacation right now as you're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. You might be on the road right now. I'm glad that you're with me. 888-914-9149. If you're on the line, please stay there. Please stay on hold. We'll get to you as soon as we can. Uh, But if you want to call in, 888, it's toll free, 914-9149. We'd love to hear your take on this. So Morgan Housel says every single person he's ever worked with comes back from their vacation saying the same thing. Maybe in a bunch of different ways, but it's essentially the same message. They'll say stuff like, hey, now that I've had some time to think, I finally realized X, you know, whatever that is. Or with a few days to clear my mind, I figured out something. While I was away, I had this awesome idea while I was on vacation. Let me tell you about it. So, what, what's the point of this? The irony is, as he says, people can get some of their most important work done outside of work. because Why? Because they're free to think. And they're free to ponder stuff. And you you kind of need that. You kind of need to to disconnect from the normal daily grind at the desk in order to figure out some stuff. And and, and the problem with the traditional 9-to-5 work schedule, 40 hours a week, is that very often you don't have that kind of time. You can't accommodate that kind of time to figure all this stuff out. So it's this idea, and, I, and I've, I've heard this um, said and I've read about this in a lot of different contexts and a lot of different ways, this, this sort of need for blank space or, or, or white space in your day to think. Um, some people even make a, make a habit of this as part of their, their everyday work. Bill Gates, and I don't want to get into Bill Gates. Yeah, everybody's got opinions about Bill Gates and, and what he's all about and what, what he's really doing. But we do know this. One thing that he used to do when he was building Microsoft was, you probably heard about this. Bill Gates used to have what he called Think Weeks. He would take an entire week. Now, yeah, he had the, he had the means to do it. Uh, he, he's the guy. He's the CEO. He can, he can call the shots. So he would, he would take, every year, he would take a week off. It wasn't really off. He was working, but he was just doing different stuff. And he would go to a cabin in the woods, and he would have what he called think weeks, where he would read important stuff, re- read stuff. He would think, and he would plan, and he would figure out stuff for the future. And then when he came back to the office, he could actually implement this. So you might have heard of that. It's pretty famous. Some people have what are called think days. Some people are in the habit of doing this like once a month. They take, and if you can't get away during your work week, maybe you could do it on a Saturday or something like that. Or, or even think morning, take a Saturday morning once a month and just kind of think about stuff unstructured. And very often it's weird how this works. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. 888 If you have a problem if you have a, a, an issue that you're trying to sort through, and maybe it's not a professional thing, maybe it's even just on the personal level, you've got a situation that you're dealing with. Maybe it's a family situation or a relationship problem or whatever the case may be. And the answer comes to you when you're not actually thinking about it, when you're not actually dealing with a problem. Maybe you're out for a walk with the dog in the woods, or, or maybe you're, I don't know, I met a guy the, a couple of weeks ago who's, who surfs. You know, he's in tip-top shape and he, he goes surfing in California all the time. Well, maybe while, while he's surfing, maybe he figured out something. Maybe the wave hit him in the head and then he, oh yeah. And then he realized yeah, he, he could figure out something in his business. I don't know. But, but sometimes this this happens. That if you have some time in your schedule where your mind can wander and where you can be a little bit curious, that can actually be the place where you do some of your best work. It might seem like you're not working, but it's where you figure out some of your biggest problems related to work. So Morgan Housel says, now this, this is not really normally going to fly with your boss because if you tell your boss, hey, listen, um, well, you could start off by telling him, hey, I found a trick. I found an idea that's going to make me more creative and productive at work. Oh, he'll say, that's fantastic. I, I want you to be more productive, Smith. You know, uh, What are you waiting for? Well, uh, here, here's what I want to do. I actually want to take a 90-minute walk in the middle of the day get out of here. No, you got to be at your desk, man. So that's that's really not going to fly. But at the end of the day, as Morgan Housel says, the problem is there are all these people who have thought jobs. They're they're in the knowledge worker industry. They have thought jobs without any time to actually think. And so um there's a piece that ran a few years ago in the New York Times about George Schultz. I don't know if you remember him. He was the Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, and he would do this. He would imagine how busy this guy was super super important job this is in the middle of the cold war you know so george schultz secretary of state he would actually carve out an hour he could only do an hour he could only do an hour every week this hour of solitude he'd kind of go into his fortress of solitude if you will he'd say he's, he'd say look listen he'd say to his um his admin assistant no one can interrupt me except for two people if it, I only want two phone calls ever to come through while I'm doing this hour. Number one, my wife. Number two, the president, President Reagan. Otherwise, do not interrupt me for any reason. So what he did during that hour, he thought about things at a higher level, the, the 40,000 foot level, if you will. He thought about the strategy of his job, geopolitical stuff, big picture stuff. Because if he didn't do that, he would be constantly pulled into the problem of the moment, the ish, the pressing issue uh, uh, of, of the time, there's always something and you can never get to that that big picture game plan. And so the only way you can really do awesome work, no matter what your job is, if you're in the knowledge work, is to figure out the bigger picture, the larger question. So if you're spending all your time at the worm's eye level, at the worm's eye view, you're dealing with issues on the ground, then you're never going to get the, the bird's eye view that you need. And you need both, by the way. Obviously, you can't you can't just like, punt on on pressing issues but but if you don't take that time it's not going to happen it's not going to happen if if you if you have a strategic job if you uh, have a job where you have to be creative or if you're involved in working with people and you've got issues you've got to make decisions it's not if you're not working in a widget factory and there's nothing wrong with that again you, we need people to make widgets you know we need that. that that can be that can be glorifying to god but but if that's not your possession, your profession then you need this 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 time, and even everybody kind of needs this time in their own life, even even outside of work. And so, it just it's just strange how that happens. That big picture thinking and 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 a big sort of aha moment often comes when you are sort of in this focused zone, uninterrupted. Maybe you're on a walk, or you're on the beach, or you're riding your bike, or whatever. Steve Jobs used to do this all the time. Um, I've talked about this. Morgan Housel talks about this too. Most of his big meetings that he had with people, like serious conversations, serious issues, he would, he'd say to somebody, hey, let's go for a walk. And they'd go for a long walk and they'd talk that way. Um, Charlie Munger, you probably know who he is. He's Warren Buffett's business partner. The Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, right? Berkshire Hathaway. Well, it's, it's, it's Buffett, but there's also Charlie Munger, who is his partner. And somebody once asked him, hey, what is Buffett's secret? And Charlie Munger said, quote, I would say half of all the time Buffett spends is sitting on his butt. Well, he said something else, but sitting on his butt and reading. He has a lot of time to think, a lot of time to think. And because he has that time to think, he can do these like wildly creative things and he can see things that maybe nobody else sees. So uh, the, there's this guy named Amos Versky." Tversky. Um, who worked with the Nobel-winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman? Uh, he said the secret to doing good research is always to be a little underemployed. You waste years by not being able to waste hours. End of quote. So again, but it's it's not really wasted time though. It's not really wasted time. So this idea that if you don't have some some sort of Margin in your schedule in which you can think about some of these issues. You may not ever figure some of these things out You might be spinning your wheels like a hamster uh, again and again again without ever having Problem solved. So how can you do this? Well If you can't get away from the desk the 9 to 5 You might be able to take a couple hours in the morning maybe getting up earlier a little bit earlier It's a cheat code and, and think about just spend some time thinking about it, maybe over a cup of coffee uh, a big issue that you're dealing with, or try to go for a walk at lunchtime, maybe on your break, or if you can manage it, maybe in, in the summertime, knock out a little bit early and, and spend the rest of your workday just getting by yourself and thinking about strategy. So the the problem is a lot of these jobs, they, they don't ever stop. They don't stop. And if you don't do this, you're actually going to be less efficient in your actual workday. Here's what Housel says. He says, quote, there's never going to be an Adamson act for knowledge workers who need time to think. It's up to you to figure it out. The first step is realizing that taking time in the middle of your day to do stuff that doesn't look like work is the most important part of your workday, end of quote. Yeah, maybe it doesn't look like work, but it is work and it might be your most important work. You're listening to The Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. I'd love to hear your take on this, 888 9149 and we'll be right back after this short break.
0: Faith, facts, and fun. It's The Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio.
1: Hey, welcome back to the program. On this Monday, we're kicking off the week in style. So glad that you're with me. 888 914 We talked about the stairway to heaven, what that really was, Jacob's Ladder. It's a ziggurat. Pass me a ziggurat. Uh, that was fun. We also talked about, just in the last segment, if you missed it, definitely grab the podcast after the show. It'll we'll be up a few minutes after the show. Uh, Brooke Taylor's sitting in for Timory on Trending tonight. So about halfway through her show, you should be, as you're listening to that, you should be able to download... You can multitask and download the podcast for The Kale Clark Show. We talked about how the 40-hour work week, which many of you have just started or just getting out from, is uh, something that was created really for industrial age work. And does it really work with knowledge work? And and you kind of need to get your head out of the workspace sometimes to solve some pretty big problems, look at some high-level thinking and do maybe your best work. I really want to hear what you guys had to think, uh, and s- what your thoughts are on that. 888 um, 914 Let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Maria in Tempe, Arizona. Hi, Maria. Kale, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for being so patient. You've been on hold for a while, so I'm glad you stuck with me.
0: Yes. Absolutely. I just wanted to comment about the forty-hour work week. Mm. I am an aspiring uh, teacher here in Arizona, oh, and I completely agree with the um, with the four-day work week. Mm. And there's a few school districts here in Arizona that are on the Monday through Thursday work week. And there was also a segment on CNN about the benefits of a four hour work week and the benefits are less stress, uh, more social time with family, friends, Mm -hmm. your church, your organizations. And the data also shows that it actually makes the Monday better, whether the kids are going back to school or you're going back to work. So I don't know if that's monetarily, psychologically, emotionally, you know that the four at the four day work week was so much beneficial to family and just life work balancing everything. And I'm all for it in a school district. So I just wanted to comment on that.
1: Well, first of all, congratulations to you, and, and I think it's a, a very noble thing to do. I'm glad you're going into the teaching profession. That's awesome. We need more great teachers like you in America, and. I'm sure you'll be great at it, and yeah, this idea of of the four day work week that, that's that is a pretty big deal. And I don't know if you remember this, I don't know if you've ever read this. There's a I haven't read it, but there's a very famous book by this guy named Tim Ferriss that was called the Four Hour Work Week. Wow, that sounds pretty good to a lot of people. Is this really plausible? I don't know, but certainly the four day work week is something that has been tried in a lot of different places, and, and obviously with the pandemic too. There's been a lot of experimentation on not only people working from home and we, we talked about this a lot during the pandemic on the Kale Clark Show, how <laughs> working from home, you actually wind up working way more in most cases than you normally would. Now, some people are slackers who are just going to be playing video games all day, of course. But for most people, you're working way more from home than you actually would in the office because it never ends. There is no separation between work and home. But this idea of the four-day work week has been tried. A lot of different uh, hybrid-type work uh, schedule environments have been set up. And yeah, there have been some studies that, that have been pretty positive about this because people just feel like they're living more balanced lives and they feel like they just have the time to, to get everything uh, kind of aligned. And, and I, I, I think it's, it's definitely something where the data keeps rolling in on this and it, it seems to be all positive, everything that I've read. I haven't read anything negative about the four-day work week. And there's something called, I've talked about this before on the show too, there's something called Parkinson's Law. And this is this is a real thing, and maybe you've experienced this. Parkinson's law is, um, it basically says this, that work expands to fill whatever time you've allotted to it. So, for example, if you've got a task to do and you give yourself 10 hours to do it, it's going to take you the whole 10 hours. But if you only give yourself 7 hours to do it, you're, you're going to somehow find a way to get it done in that in that time frame. So, work expands to fill the time that you give to it, and... And so sometimes I think maybe that's what's going on too with these four-day work weeks that people are just getting more done in a shorter period of time because they're cutting out some of the fat, as it were, and they're just they're just making it fit and they're able to to do other things. I don't know, interesting interesting stuff. And thanks for that call, Maria, in Tempe, Arizona. You can call in too. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine. If you want to call in, you got a good chance of getting through. There's a couple phone lines open right now. Triple eight nine one four nine one four nine let's go to our old friend paul in youngstown ohio hi paul
3: hi cale um uh, i don't know about 40 hours whether that's good or bad but uh in the plant where i work sometimes people mm-hmm. work up to 60 hours and i just think the second shift people that work 3 mm-hmm. to 11 p.m have it over the <clears> day shift because uh i work days i get up at four yep. thirty in the morning And uh, it takes up my whole day until I get back and listen to your show. And um, I've heard reports that second shift workers have better organized lives. They can think more clearly. I've Hmm. even heard they have higher IQs. (laughs) Uh, And they they do uh, generally earn a little bit more money as an incentive for working the second shift. And they generally have less supervision and do less work. So if
1: that's not smarter, what is? <laughs> well, well, Paul, I'm glad you're on the first shift because then you can listen to the show. And I do thank you for, for listening to the show and being such a faithful listener and, and caller. And it's interesting. I, I, I actually have done that before. I, I used to work in a hotel and I had that sort of second shift, if you will, 3 to 11 shift. And I actually enjoyed it. I was, I was younger back then. And very often, you know, all those guys that I worked with, we'd all go out after work. I go out for a drink or something, and, and and just really got to know each other socially. Had a great time. Um, it, it, when you move into different life phases, it may not be so great. Uh, when you're married, when you have kids, and they're on a certain schedule with school and everything, it's it's tough to be out. People have to do what they have to do, but um, and it's funny how how your body really gets used to that. You you the, the sleep schedule changes. Um, people working graveyard shifts out there as well, and listening to the relevant radio podcast, you know, over the graveyard shift, it's a good way to. To uh, hey, get some uh, faith, facts, and fun in your day as you as you do that with the Cale Clark show. But but we really uh, do thank you for that insight, Paul. Yeah, different different shifts, and do they correlate with better work experiences? Maybe better life satisfaction. That's that's another interesting area for sure. Let's go now to California. Damon is in Daly City, California. Hey, Damon.
2: Kale, uh, I appreciate what you're talking about, and I have um, perspective. Uh, Within my family's and my wife's, we have lazy, what appears to be lazy. They won't work. They don't work. And then we have Mm. the other extreme. They're always at work. They're hustle, bustle. Interesting. And looking back in life, I appreciate St. Benedict's, which is tomorrow, which is Ora et labor. Put Christ Mm. in the works. So whether Mm -hmm. you're washing the dishes, put Mother Treat in as your program in Father Rocky, I think, reminded us that yesterday was Rose Hawthorne's uh, feast day, Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter. And I wonder Mm. if his dad, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, the 18th century writer, ever Mm -hmm. pointed to his daughter and said, Rose, you're lazy. Hustle, bustle, get to work. She, uh, in New York City, spent her inheritance building a hospital for what we, Sloan Kettering now owns that property. But Hmm. back then, they called it for uh, invalids, morons, and imbeciles. Today, we call it cancer. So so aura et labora, Hmm. whatever you do, 40 hours, 4 hours, 104, keep that uh, universal... Uh, one universal apostolic um, succession within your heart at hands and voices. Mm. How about that, Carl?
1: Kale. Uh, uh, hey, hey, I, I love it. I love it. And uh, call me Carl. Call me Kale. Uh, I've been I've been called much worse. Trust me. But hey, Damon, thank you for that call. I really appreciate that. And yeah, this idea of Saint Benedict' aura at labora work and prayer, prayer and work. That's a great rhythm to life. And I remember reading. Um, and maybe, maybe this, is a, this is a book that you could look up to. It's by this guy named Brother Lawrence. It's a classic written hundreds of years ago. And it's called The Practice of the Presence of God. It was, it's an amazing book. and I, I read it when I was doing theological studies. And basically this monk named Brother Lawrence, he got to a point, and his job was to peel the potatoes in the kitchen. That, that was his job in the monastery. He peeled the potatoes. And he, and he got to a point where peeling the potatoes was this incredibly mystical experience for him he said e- even more that it's not it's not better than mass but but he felt like he was in the cathedral worshiping god when he was peeling potatoes because interiorly that's what he was doing he was offering his work to god he was finding god in the middle of his work and it was incredibly meaningful for him and so just just finding that that hidden meaning in the ordinary everyday that's what's so crucial and uh, i'm not surprised to hear uh, Father Rocky talking about things like that because, of course, you know, as a priest of Opus Dei, St. Jose Maria used to talk about that all the time, the founder of Opus Dei. If we don't find God in the ordinary, in the everyday, we're never going to find him at all. We help you to do that every day on Relevant Radio, on the Cale Clark Show, on the Faith Explained Show, on all the other great shows we have. And speaking of Father Rocky, he's going to be along a little bit later with the Family Rosary Across America. But stay tuned, Brooke Taylor sitting in for Timory on Trending this week. And she's got an incredible guest, a couple of amazing guests. You will not want to miss this. Uh, Joseph Pierce, talk about conversion stories, my goodness. He went from prison to being a poet laureate, if you will. He's a great guy, amazing guest. So stay tuned for Trending. This is K.O. Clark, Jim Shaper produced today. Young Thomas took your phone calls. We'll be back tomorrow. Take it away, Michaela.
2: Thank you for listening to my daddy.